Thank you for choosing to listen to our sermon podcast. My name is Chris Mitchell. I'm one of the pastors here at First Covenant Church of Anchorage. If you have any questions or prayer requests, feel free to stop by or send an email to office at anchoragefirstcovenant.com. God bless. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I can turn to Exodus. We're going to be continuing in our series on Exodus this morning. Before we dive into the scriptures, though, I want to just tell you a little story. So I have three children that are all grown now, and our youngest, Joshua, many of you know, he just went off to college uh, this fall. We were living in Soldatna, and Josh was a kindergartner, and I drove for many years a minivan that uh, carted my three kids around all different places, and I was uh, picking Joshua up from school that day kindergarten and I pulled up into my parking spot Now our van was kind of a tan color and it was springtime and it was the you know everything was thawing and it was dirty and you know that time of year where it's everything's messy and my van too was evidence that it was spring and it was covered with a thick thick coat of muck and dirt and slush and you know it hadn't been hadn't been washed for a while so Joshua he's our youngest uh, typical baby of the family, uh, a little impulsive, and always let us know what he was thinking, especially when he was younger, not so much as he's older, but younger. And he swung open that van door, hopped in, and I was like, hey, Josh, how is school? He doesn't even answer that question. He says, mom, our van is so dirty, even God cannot see us. Wow. And I, you know, I was a little taken aback. It actually cracked me up. We tell this story often, especially every spring when things are muddy, because it was so cute. It was so cute. And of course, he, you know, whether or not he believed that or not, or he just was trying to make a point that mom needed to go wash her van. Um, I thought of that story as I prepared for this sermon, where the Israelites questioned, does God see them? Does he know where they are? Does he care? Is he around? Even though they had just seen some amazing, miraculous signs. So we're gonna we're gonna continue in our series in Exodus. We'll be in, we'll start in Exodus fifteen twenty two. Now, uh, Pastor Chris has divided up the book. Um, we're not going you know little section by little section. We're taking kind of big chunks each week and and uh, trying to to draw the story together. Uh, if you remember, if you weren't here, uh, or, or just to review, um, last week, uh, the Israelites had just been miraculously saved from four centuries of slavery in Egypt. They had been taken through the waters, um, uh, and the, the sea had parted. The Lord had taken them through, and the sea had covered their enemies, destroying the armies of Pharaoh, and they had been delivered. Um, from slavery, and they are now free in the desert. And this is where we're going to pick up today's story. Now, we're not going to, actually, Chris assigned me chapters 15 to 18, <laughs> three chapters. We're going to stay fairly close to the text this morning and a few of these passages and other places I'm going to paraphrase a little. Um, but it's important to know that in commentators looking at the narrative, um, even though these are uh, separated by little title headings, this, these first three stories were meant to be read together. 
they make a point and they go together. And so we're going to look at the three of these um, as, a, as an element. Now, all three of them deal with the Israelites grumbling, grumbling because they lack. They lack things that are vital to their survival in the desert. So the first and the third stories are about water, and the middle story is about their need for food. Now, if we were going to use an analogy of birth, if you think of them coming through the waters, being birthed into freedom, that is their birth. This section really could be compared to their infancy. The beginning where God is taking his people by hand and teaching them patiently and lovingly about who he is and what he has in store for them. These stories are not just about the people's murmurings, but it's about God and a God who cares for his people. Now, these three rapid fire stories of rebellion in the desert stagger the imagination um, in fact, um, it's interesting to see how the commentators call it um, um, absurd, um, staggering, that, that even after there have been such an crazy, amazing manifestation of God for his people, that they would very soon forget and begin to doubt this God they served. No sooner do the Israelites leave Egypt under the most miraculous of circumstances within one month of their departure they lapse into the pattern of grumbling. They again use their own perception of their circumstances as the standard by which they base their reality. They still have not learned yet, though the Lord is working on them, <clears throat> that even though there's no food or water, God is above their circumstances. They grumble and God uses their grumbling as an occasion not to punish his people, but to teach them something about himself. The song that Matt sang this morning, Little Miracles, I, I tried to scribble the words down real quick, but he says, I, the, the, um, the song says, I wanna, I wanna live like I know who you are, that I never get, a, get over what you've done. I think it's along those lines. I wanna live like I know who you are, that I'll never get over what you've done. The Israelites at this point have gotten over what God had done. And that song quickens our hearts to remember who God is and that we won't get over what he's done. So let's look and see who this God is. So we're going to start in verse chapter 15, verses 22 to 27. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place was called Mara. It means bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them to put that and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord, your God, and do what is right in his eyes. If you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. 
few weeks ago in Sunday school, our children's church downstairs, we were going over the story of Moses when God had called him from the burning bush to lead his people out of slavery. And Moses says, well, what if they ask me your name? Like, what am I supposed to tell them? Who are you? And uh, we went over the lesson about how he said, my name is I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. I am. It's this opening, um, very expansive name. I am, and I will be who I will be. And what we see in the Old Testament is he adds, he adds words and descriptions in. And this first one, he says, I am your healer. We see that um, if with the three days that's passed since they've crossed the sea, that um, we don't know all the details of that time, but it's possible that this is an echo, that three days of when the, the Israelites might have been expecting something amazing at day three, because when Moses went to Pharaoh, he said, let us go for three days to worship our God. Now we know that the, it, was for, it was for good, it just wasn't for three days, but it's very possible they were expecting a very big thing to happen on day three, and instead of this amazing something, they found themselves parched three days with no water. Now however the harsh realities of a desert had set in, and they have begun to fear they might die of thirst, um, they cry out, they cry out to Moses. And Moses also responds in a manner familiar to us. He cries out the same way the Israelites earlier had responded to their oppression in Egypt. And God also in turn responds in a manner reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt. He performs another water miracle. Remember one of the plagues is when he um, turned the Nile into blood. The life source of the Egyptians turned to blood. They could not, they had no water for many days. And in this story, the wood that he shows Moses reminds us of the wood of the staff that Moses used to perform the two great water miracles of the departure narrative, the, the Nile. And then he, he took his staff and put it into the water and the Red Sea split. We have another example here of God's control over chaotic waters that he had done twice in Egypt. Waters that could have brought death to God's people behave in a manner contrary to their nature and work for Israel's good. The connection to these events in Egypt is made explicit in verse 26. And the, if the Israelites will obey God's commands and his decrees, they'll be spared those diseases that were inflicted on the Egyptians. The sweetening of the bitter water evokes an image of what God did in Egypt, particularly when he turned the sweet waters of the Nile into blood. By performing what is essentially an opposite miracle here, God is showing his continued faithfulness to his people, despite their apparent evidence to the contrary. And we see at the end of this little section that they moved on from this place to Elam where there were springs and palm trees. They were so close to an oasis, but they didn't quite know that yet. And after this difficult time of, of fear, being afraid they were going to die in the desert because of thirst, they come to a place, an oasis place. I don't know if you've ever been into a desert or an oasis. 
I had a privilege to travel to Israel um, a little over, I think, 12 years ago with my mom. And I had never been to, like, the desert. And I got to be, like, in this desert. And I tell you, it is just what you think of the most barren, dry desert. But we ha also had an opportunity to go to an oasis, which I'd heard that word and never knew exactly what it meant. Um, the oasis we visited was actually in Gedi, which is a place where David wrote many of his psalms and hid in the caves from uh, when Saul was following him. But it's just the craziest thing. You have just miles and miles and miles of parched desert. But then there's a place of streams where because of the way the water bubbles up, there's green. Just a, a, It's like a... It's a huge area of just green and lush vegetation and water smack dab in the middle of the desert. That's where they were close to um, and got to go rest there after their, their trial with the Lord. He took them to a place of rest. All right. So the next section is in chapter 16. We're going to read verses 1 to 12. The whole Israelite community set out from that place, Elam, and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. Now remember, Sinai is where they were headed. This is where Chris will preach next week. They were headed to Sinai for an amazing um, revelation of God and the giving of the law. So this is on the 15th day of the second month after they come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled again against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hands in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Later in the text, it explains the Sabbath and how that's a day of rest. We're not going to go into that portion too deeply, but remember they were together too on the sixth day, so they'd have enough for, for that and the Sabbath. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Say, Moses told Aaron, say to the entire community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of you Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So the time at Elam is short-lived in their oasis. And eventually that foretaste of paradise where they're heading uh, ends and the people again find themselves on the arduous journey towards Sinai. Now, surely you'd think having just seen again God's care for them that, you know, their grumbling rebellion might, you know, fade out of their heart. And that's out of question now, right? 
Wrong. A mere month has passed since the departure from Egypt, and is their memory still so short? They've just witnessed God's provision of water in the desert and then into an oasis, and yet still they arrive in the desert of sin and immediately begin grumbling against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites bring out what is an absurd charge against their leaders. They've actually just brought them out for them all to die. The only thing maybe more surprising than this accusation is God's response. Rather than punish him, he rains down bread from heaven. If any of you have been taught that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different, that the Old Testament is a God of law and the New Testament is a God of grace, I hope that this will um, change your mind on that. Early on in this scene, we see that God's grace is so evident in this. You need to look no further than this episode. Without a hint of anger or malice, God provides for his people again. And with this provision, they were to gather, like I said, one, uh, one enough for just enough for a day. Now, the word is test. Uh, and when we think of test, we think of like a pop quiz or like trying to see if they're going to mess up. But really, this word really has in the original language is more about like a training. Like it's a training to get them ready, to help them know who he is. Uh, I uh, was encouraged by some of the ladies in our church to do the um, triathlon, the Gold Nugget Triathlon this last year. And I'd done triathlons before and I knew it took training. But I'd probably had the most inactive uh, winter of my life with all the snow. But I thought, yeah, I'm going to take this on. But I knew I couldn't just show up on the day of the race and actually be able to finish it. No, I needed to get into the pool. I needed to get my bike out, dust it off. I needed to get some new running shoes. I needed to start training for that challenge, for that. And so the Lord is, is in, in this desert time, he's wanting to train, to raise up his people, to know who they are and to live into the call that he has for them to be a blessing to all the nations as he promised their father, their great-grandfather, their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the main purpose of sending, sending manna and quail is not just to test them or fill their stomachs, but it's to teach them something about God. Now, we didn't read the whole section, but sure enough, they see this incredible manifestation of the Lord in the cloud. Quail come and settle at night, and they have a feast of meat, and the next morning, this strange substance is on the ground. And they looked at it and said, what is it? And that became its name, manna, which means what is it? Uh, it was this white flaky stuff that they would gather. They could boil it. They could bake it. They could grind it. They could cook it all different ways. And it tasted like honey. Tasted like honey wafers. So it tasted good and they could use it for their sustenance. And it was rained down from heaven. Now we know that they were supposed to follow the instructions. This is what I'm telling you to do. Take just enough you need for the day. And of course, some people didn't listen. They tried to get their extra, stash it away for their midnight snack or whatever, or for the next day to have bonus. They woke up in the morning and it was smelly and there was maggots. He was training them. Trust me, listen to what I say, follow my instructions. So it was to teach them, to train them, that the Israelites will know this is also in verse 12. We'll know 
that it was the Lord God that was with them. Just like the Lord who brought them out of Egypt, it was the same God feeding them from heaven today. And it's also in this context that Moses addresses the grumbling of the Israelites. They have complained to Moses and Aaron, but Moses reminds them that their real complaint is against God. That's in verses 7 and 8. He is the one they are distrusting and even mocking by their display of thankfulness. Yet God responds again by giving the people another glimpse of his exodus might. There out in the desert, they see the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. Now, the last time that the Lord had appeared in a cloud was in chapter 14, verse 24, as they were making their way through the seas. The cloud was then a sign of God's presence with and protection of his people, just as it is in this scenario. All right, moving on to the third, the third of these three um, scenarios in the desert. This isn't found in chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, from place to place as the Lord commanded. So the Lord is moving them from place to place. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses. Now this word is different. It's not just, not just complain, not just grumble. It's a stronger verb. They quarrel with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answers Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with, with, with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called this place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? This statement, is the Lord among us or not, is actually what I entitled this sermon. Here they are having witnessed some of, some of the, not just little miracles, right? That we sing about but these massive, massive history-making miracles. And yet they're still asking, is the Lord with us or not? This third rebellion episode is the famous incident getting water from the rock. And it's the Israelites' last stop on their way to Sinai. Here again, they complain about the lack of water. To have two similar episodes so close together in the narrative points out the absurdity of Israel's lack of trust in God. Like Pharaoh before them, how many times do they need to see God work before they understand? They still do not see that he has their best interests in mind and that he has moved mightily from the time of the patriarchs to come to this moment. And he will not let a little thing like water supply stand in the way. 
You know, it's easy for us, right, to just be like, how do you say that? And yet so often we too find ourselves in that same place. So easy to forget when things get hard, when circumstances seem impossible for us too. I also thought about the stories in the New Testament where even just after the disciples had seen Jesus feed the 5,000 with just a few pieces of bread and fish, just a short time later, they're in the same situation with even a smaller crowd. And they're like, what are we going to do? How are we going to find food? Even though they had just seen it just a short time before. So we know that this is part of the human condition where we have a hard time remembering the, what the Lord does. And so as the people complain, God still does not become angry. Moses cries out again, and you can tell his anger is gathering. I'm like, God, what am I supposed to do with these people? You call me to this. Moses is still harboring maybe even some doubts about his mission, but God does not become angry with Moses. Here he is patient with him as he is with the others. Moses is instructed to walk ahead to Horeb, to take elders with him, strike the rock. The imagery is clear. The water from the rock is another Exodus-like event. The staff touches water and the people are saved. The power that has brought the Israelites out of Egypt is the same power that's sustaining them in the desert and that will bring them eventually safely into the land that God has promised to Abraham. And it shows that Yahweh is Lord of the desert, as he has also shown himself to be the Lord of Egypt. The desert is a hostile place as Egypt, but both are at God's command. We have in these three stories of grumbling and complaining, which are lovingly and patiently answered by God, a story of Israel's rebellion, but and that and it's a sudden and sustained rebellion and it continues on the reader can only wonder why god puts up with it but he does because what he has in his mind is the full picture of his promises to the patriarchs that will not be thwarted by anyone neither pharaoh nor even his the israelites themselves he keeps his people on track we must remember that their relationship with God is still in its infancy. And despite all they have seen, perhaps they still need a clearer picture of the Holy God who has called them into being. Now I want to take one look at one last passage and then make a few closing statements. This might be one of my favorite stories in the Exodus account. They're all amazing. But this one has... Um, has been a favorite of mine. So there they are in the desert at Horeb. They've had a third miracle and now an attack. There's a threat from an outside force. Now the Israelites are roaming, they're nomadic, but there are still many other peoples that are also nomadic or other settlements that are around. And so um, the Amalekites are another one of those nomadic peoples and they come and it says the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. So there they are. This is the place where they had the water from the rock. They're still there. Now they're being attacked by the Amalekites. Moses said to Joshua, enter Joshua. We have a new character. Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. 
Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and then he sat on that. And Aaron and, Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. Joshua, so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. The question that was asked just before this, is God with us or not? And this situation happens right at the heels to be an exclamation mark, a punctuation that yes, the Lord is with you. And he, call, he, uh, he tells Moses to call out to him to, to go up, to hold up this, the staff of God, which has, which has been a symbol of power and salvation over and over and over again and, and provision to take it up. But you know, and, I, and so I, I've often seen this as prayer, you know, like we go before God and we, we come to him when we're attacked to our knees. But, you know, we get tired. We get tired. And Moses got tired. And so it was Aaron and her that were up there with him. And they came up with a plan. Like, hey, Moses, stay here on this rock. Now you hold it up. And then we're going to come. I'm going to be over here. And I'm going to be over here. And we're going to stay here all day. They stayed there. That made me think of the song that Matt introduced us to this morning. That Lauren Daigle talks about crying and crying and having, I think it's her mom and sister relatives coming beside her and crying and being with her all night long. This is a picture of what it looks like as we journey together ourselves into our own deserts, our own, our own struggles, the attacks that come from outside, that we are invited to call on the name of the Lord who is our banner, and the battle is his. Now, I just want to draw three conclusions from all this long text. First, our life with God is wilderness wandering. We are on our way to the promised land. This is not our home. And we know that, that Jesus came and the kingdom of God was near and that he brought his kingdom. And we're living it out where it's the, it's the here and now, but it's the not yet. And so much of our life is like this wilderness wandering. And within this time, God wants us to come to know who he is, that he is healer. He is our banner. These are the two names we see introduced in this text. And there are many more to come. But that this wandering wilderness time will include times of desert and times of oasis. The psalmist uh, wrote about it like this, Psalm 84, verses five to seven. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage, the journey. As they pass through the valley of Baca, which is a desert, 
They make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. We too, in our journey towards maturity, are at different stages from being newborns into children, teenagers, adults. We too grow. And as we go from strength to strength, the Lord wants us to teach us who he is. And that often means that we have challenges and difficulties. But he wants to, to show himself faithful to us and invites us to cry out to him so that as we go through this desert wandering, that we, with the Lord, will be able to make it a place of springs, that we too will be a blessing to all, just as is promised to Abraham. The second thing is to guard your heart against the hardening. This also comes from Psalm 95, 6 through 9. He says, come, let us worship. Let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you would only hear his voice, hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness. That was the second water issue. Where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. We're encouraged here to not let our hearts be hardened, to continue to worship and bow down, even in the midst of the trials. And the third, the third um, conclusion statement I would like to make is that the battle is real. The battle is real. The battle is real from things here on earth. Um, we also have an enemy. We have an enemy in the spiritual realm. And we are often attacked. But 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4 tells us, that For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We have spiritual weapon of prayer and of encouragement in the body. See, Aaron and her were as instrumental to this, to this victory as Moses was in his faith. And when he was tired, they held him up. And we too need to be like Aaron and her, to be bringing um, and, and supporting and caring people in prayer and intercession to be those who are standing beside people in their dark times, in their, in their tears. Makes me think of the Matthew 6 story where the paralytic, he couldn't get to Jesus. And so his friends put him on a mat and took him to the top of the roof. And the scripture says that when Jesus saw their faith, we don't know if it we don't even know if the paralytic had faith. Maybe it was a there five, but maybe it was the four. They had faith. Sometimes we, we rely on the faith of other people in those hard times. And so we, we um, are encouraged to remember the battle is the Lord's. We can come to him, cry out to him. He is our banner. And that we also need people alongside of us. And that's what we're called to be as the church. Now, there's another section that we're not going to go over that's in the same chapter about how Moses' father-in-law comes for a visit and realizes that Moses, beyond the grumbling Israelites, is way in over his head. 
And even there, we see God's grace to Moses to help him administrate the people so that Moses would be able to endure with the help of many others being delegated along with this mission. So this morning, I would just encourage you to think about where you're at. Are you in a desert wandering right now? Maybe you're in an oasis. Either way, the Lord wants you to know that he is with you. But he wants you to know him. He wants you to know him. And when the testing comes, that he is faithful. He is our banner. He is our healer. And it is the Lord that rescues. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at these stories, um, we it's, it can be easy to be critical or judgmental, and yet, how could they? And how could they miss it? How could they be so quick to forget? But Lord, we confess that we too are quick to forget. So Lord, in the challenges that we're facing right now, would you call to mind? the ways that you have shown yourself to us in our lives, maybe even not that long ago? Or would you draw us into the scriptures to show us the journey that you've walked with your people through the desert wilderness, all through the Old Testament, New Testament, the many, many ways you've made yourself known. That Lord, in our in our weakness and in our frailty, Lord, you are a God of grace and you call us. You, you shower blessings on us, even, even when we're stubborn. And so, Lord, help us to respond. Help us that our hearts are not hardened to you. May we not be asking, are you with us or not? Or may we take it by faith that you are. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Moses and Joshua Miriam and Aaron and her and all the Israelites and you are our God and that you long to show yourself faithful and that we would call on you and that we would um, pray in the spirit that we would fight our battles with the armor that you've given us and that we would um, know that you have won the victory on our behalf in Jesus name amen